People have all kinds of problems and doubts and struggles when it comes to God. I've heard a lot of them, I'm sure you have too, but probably the most common one of all is what I guess you could call the problem of evil. The problem of evil. And the logical form of the problem of evil, you may have heard before, it's you know, sort of an intellectual problem that's often posed, and it kind of goes like this. If God is good, and if God was truly good and truly all-powerful, then there would be no evil in the world. And yet there is evil in the world. And so because of that fact, that there is evil in the world, it must be that God is either powerful but not good, or he's good and yet not powerful. And that's often called the problem of theodicy. Uh, it's, it's a hugely debated issue throughout the history of philosophy and theology. But, you know, I think, for, I think for most people that struggle with this issue, it's not so much an intellectual and logical struggle as it is an existential one. It's just simply the fact that we feel overwhelmed and confused about the goodness of God when we see the sheer scale of evil and suffering in the world. You know, by the end of this sermon, um, about a dozen children will have died from violence or abuse. Hundreds will have died of hunger. Thousands will have died of treatable diseases. There are so many people who die of horrific violence and suffering every single day. It's just like whole cities are swept off the planet every single day. And most of the time, we don't think about this. I mean, you just can't, right? If you, if you were just sort of thinking about and meditating on and being aware of all of the horrific violence and evil and suffering in the world all the time, you couldn't survive. You couldn't live. It would, you, know, you would just get overwhelmed. But every once in a while, the sheer brokenness of the world just kind of bursts through and hits you personally. Sometimes it might be in a very individual way. It might be just you know, a, a, a diagnosis or an accident. And sometimes it hits us in a collective way, like let's say a global pandemic. But the, the question is, what do you do? What do you do when the sheer confusion and inexplicable terror of the human experience hits you like a train? How, how do you wrestle with that, with your faith? Have you wrestled with that? Have you asked that question? Where is God in all of this? If God is good, then why is he allowing all of this? If, if there really is a God and he is allowing all this, maybe I don't want anything to do with that God. Have you ever asked any of those questions? I have. I do sometimes. I think it would be very normal to ask those questions. Maybe some of you are asking them now. In many ways, those very questions, that very issue, this problem of evil, is the very thing that Revelation 6 is confronting us with. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we have been, in the last two weeks, in what is considered to be really the heart of the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and 5, what some people consider to be the, the most important chapters in, in the whole Bible. Uh, we've had this glorious picture of the throne room of God. In chapter 4, we see the throne room. We've seen the throne. We see the one sitting on the throne. We see this glorious worship around the throne. 
Uh, and then in chapter five, last week the vision continued, we saw the, 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 the lion who is the lamb, the slain lamb, sharing the throne. And we see all around the throne, the, the worship, the creatures, the angels, every creature on heaven and under the earth praises the one who is seated on the throne. And it is, remember, this is not some future reality. This is present reality. What is happening right now, it is this glorious, beautiful, amazing vision. And you kind of wish, at least I do, maybe the book could just end right there with that wonderful picture, that wonderful vision of the throne. But if you're reading carefully, and if you were listening carefully last week, you'd notice that even by the end of chapter five, the scroll has not yet been opened. The seals have not yet been broken. The scroll, which represents the mysteries of human history and all that must unfold, has not yet been revealed. And so in chapter six, the chapter that you just heard read, the seals, the lamb begins to break the seals. The scroll begins to be opened. And what happens? All hell breaks loose. The terrors and the sorrows and the, and the injustice and the horrors of the human experience come pouring out. We are brought face to face with the worst depravities of the human existence. It's like, it's like we're, you know, we were in this throne room. It's like we're yanked from this glorious throne room, right whipped back into the raw reality of the human experience. And you see, the, the question that the text itself is offering to us is this. Is the lamb still on the throne? In the face of a world like ours, in the face of evil, like the stuff that we face, in the world of so much terror and suffering and sorrow and sin, can we still believe that Christ is reigning and that Christ is ruling? And if he is, then why is he allowing all of this to happen? Where is he in the midst of all of this? Why is he not doing something? And see, this is why I love the Bible. It is the most realistic book you will ever read. It does not shy away from the hardest questions that even the most hardened skeptic asks. There is no attempt to minimize the problems that we face. In fact, it takes all, the book of Revelation takes all of the worst forms of human suffering and pain and the catastrophes that face human society, and it dares to say that right there in the middle of all that evil, Jesus reigns. So here's the truth we'll look at today. Here's the lesson that the vision of the scrolls, of the seals is teaching us. Despite all the evil and all the untold suffering and the sorrow around us, Jesus is reigning, Jesus is working, and Jesus is moving to set things right. Jesus is reigning, Jesus is working, and Jesus is moving at this moment to set things right. So um, before I jump into the points today, let me just remind you of a little bit about the structure of Revelation, because this, like I said earlier, this is when it gets crazy, okay? This is why most people stop reading the book at chapter 6. So I'm going to throw out that slide um, where I broke down the structure of the book. You can see, again, that the book is broken down into seven visions um, which each includes seven segments. We've looked at the seven lampstands. Now we are in the seven seals. And the view, you know, if you, if you, if you're t if you take purely a futurist view on the book of Revelation, then all of these things will happen one day in the future, after the rapture, after Christians have been taken away, and you won't have to experience any of them, right? And so it has no, basically the book has very little relevance on the current life. 
But the view that we're taking, and which I believe is the faithful view, is that each of these visions is actually telling the same story again and again, essentially retelling the story of history between the first and second comings of Christ. So remember our analogy of the slow motion replay in a sports game? Like, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a close call at the end zone, and so they show the play from one angle, and they show it from another angle, and then they show it from the Goodyear blimp, and then they show it from the pylon camera, and they show it again, and they show And basically what you're doing is you're seeing the same play from multiple angles to get an enhanced perspective, and the same sort of thing happens here, is that each of these sets of seven are showing the same play, if you will, the same section of human history between the first and second comings of Christ, showing them from a different angle that we might get an enhanced perspective on what is happening in human history. And so, as we get into the seven seals today, and then look at the seven trumpets of the seven bulls, let's remember that each of these is a poetic and symbolic explanation of human history that has come before us, that we are in now, and that is to come. Okay? So, let's dig into this passage, what it tells us about the problem of evil, by looking at first the reality of it, the reality of evil, second, the judgment of evil, and third, how to live with evil. Okay? So first, the reality of evil. The main way our passage shows us the reality of evil is through this pretty scary symbol of the four horsemen. These are the infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now remember, these are symbolic and representative of greater realities. You should not expect to see these horsemen you know, galloping through the city like those horrible Nazguls from the Lord of the Rings. You should not expect to see these people. And yet we see the realities that they represent every single day because each of these horsemen represents some dark and nefarious force of sin, evil, and depravity that wreaks havoc on human society from age to age. Okay? So... What do they each represent? So for first, the horseman. The first horseman, it says, is a white horse. A white horse. Now, in Revelation 19, Jesus appears on a white horse. And so there's some speculation, maybe this is Jesus. It's pretty clearly not Jesus, though, partly because this horseman does not have his own authority. He's given, granted authority. He has different weaponry. He has a bow, which was used by the foes of Israel. Uh, He was clearly bent on military conquest. So what this horseman is, is he is like a little lesser imposter of the true king. So I think the most clear explanation of this is that the horseman represents corrupted power, political corruption or corrupted power. You can see I have my little horseman there. I couldn't find a very evil looking horseman, but that's the best I could do. Um, So corrupted power. This, uh, you know, it's interesting. Chapman University... You might have heard of this survey that they do every single year um, on American fears. Every year they survey a bunch of random adults in America and they find out what are the greatest fears. It's famous because typically fear of public speaking always ranks above fear of death. Um, But interestingly, the last five years, the number one fear in America has been the same. Each of the five years and has only intensified in its primacy. And you know what that is, number one fear? Corrupt government officials. Corrupt government officials. 
Why do we fear that? Because we know it's a reality and we know the kind of damage it can do. And I mean, just think of all the harm that is caused in the world by corrupt leaders, tyranny, corrupted power, leadership that brings harm and destruction. That's the first horse, corrupted power. Second, the second horseman is on a red horse, the color of blood. And it says he takes peace from the earth and causes people to kill each other. Uh, This rider represents war and conflict and strife. This is a reality that for all of our human ingenuity and progress, we cannot seem to leave violence behind us. The 20th century, as you probably know, the most violent century in all of human history. And so this red horseman not only turns nation against nation, but it also divides families and it splits husbands from wives and it turns siblings against siblings. It divides teammates and coworkers and communities and countries and churches. This rider is the destroyer of shalom, the peace of God. He takes peace from the earth and he does it with a great sword. He represents war and conflict and all that divides. The third horseman, it says, is on a black horse and he has a pair of scales in his hands. And a voice is heard saying as he rides out, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now a denarius was a day's wage and a quart of wheat is not enough to feed a family at the time. And so this rider represents economic injustice. He is the harbinger of famine and greed and economic exploitation and social injustice. It is a sobering truth that in the most prosperous age of human history, we still have 25,000 people a day who die of hunger, even today. Finally, we should not be surprised when the fourth seal is open and here comes riding death itself, riding a pale, sickly horse. And Hades following after him. It is, it's just a, this very, very terrifying image of death riding, galloping across the earth with the grave behind him, collecting corpses in his wake. Now, even though this is not chronological, remember this is symbolic, this is not meant to be a chronological progression, and yet you can see uh, a theological and, and sociological progression even here. Corrupt power often leads to war, which often leads to economic oppression and injustice, which often leads to death. These are the grim features of our world. This is the reality of evil. Now, before we move on to the next point, I just want you to see that we're beginning to develop an answer to the question that I posed in the beginning of the sermon. How can you say that God is good and powerful? How can you say that Jesus is on the throne when there is so much rampant evil in the world? Well, what we're seeing here is that God, in one way, allows humanity to experience the full repercussions of our Rebellion, just like if you ignored the physical laws of gravity and tried to walk off a cliff, you'd fall and die. In the same way, in rejecting the spiritual law of God's reign and rule, we experience the destruction of community, society, and creation itself. The, the, the famous New Testament scholar Bruce Metzger said this, I think this is a brilliant quote. He said, the four Horsemen of the apocalypse are brilliant little vignettes that show what happens in the sphere of politics, of military action, and of economics whenever men and women oppose the will of God. God is allowing the outworking of evil. He does not violate our freedom of rebellion, and he is allowing evil 
to bear out its destructive repercussions that we might be led to repentance, as it says in Romans 1. So God is allowing it, yet on the other hand, he's also restraining it. He's restraining evil. Notice how the first horseman, verse 2, is given a crown. And the second horseman, verse 4, was permitted to take peace from the earth. What that says is these dogs are on a leash. God is restraining. Even the terrible agents of these destruction are are under God's sovereign control. They're reined in. They they are somehow even serving God's good purposes. And so what we see that in the mystery of God's will, he allows the outworking of sin and evil, and yet he simultaneously restrains it. He gives us freedom to rebel, allowing us to experience the full repercussions of sin, yet he is sovereignly in control. Evil is only allowed to operate under the parameters granted to it by God. Somehow, even it is serving God's purposes. So, I just want you to see how amazing this is. I mean, I'm a big believer. I think you're not going to think I'm such a nerd, but I'm a big believer that good theology always leads to good mental health, right? And we all need some good mental health these days. Good theology always leads to good mental health. And this gives us this brilliant theology that enables us to foster good mental health, especially in times of great trouble, evil, and suffering. Because, you know, on the one hand, if we're Christians, we are the most equipped the least surprised, and the most hopeful when it comes to seeing the sheer scale of evil in the world. You know, we're not surprised when terrible things happen. We're not surprised when we see horrific things occur. We're not surprised even when we see good and, and even Christian leaders exposed in sin and duplicity. Why? We're not surprised because we know The power of evil is galloping through the earth. We know that our battle is not against flesh and blood, that there are terrible forces of evil and satanic powers that are at work to destroy and undermine God's good world. We are very realistic. We are not surprised, and yet we are not cynical. We are not despondent. Even when calamity comes and strife divides and evil rears its head, we remain calm and hopeful because we know simultaneously with the galloping horseman is the lamb who is reigning over heaven and earth. He is still in control of the world. It's the reality of evil. So what's the answer to all of this? It takes us to our second point, the judgment of evil. The answer to all of this is that God will bear all this evil only for a set period of time. His promise is to one day judge the powers of evil and sin and to set things right. Now, judgment is not a happy thing. It's not a popular thing to talk about these days. Um, But honestly, we cannot talk about the book of Revelation without talking about judgment because it's in every single of the seven cycles. Modern people don't like hearing about the idea of divine Judgment, frankly, it sounds archaic, it sounds repugnant, draconian, offensive. But I just want to challenge that a little bit because I just want you to imagine what if there really was no judgment? I mean, seriously, y'all, just think about this. What if there really is no conclusion, definitive conclusion to history? What if there is no ultimate weighing of good and evil? What if these four horsemen can just roam endlessly, no reins on them, no stopping them, they can have their way forever? Imagine, imagine that. Uh, imagine, 
Imagine a little 12-year-old girl enslaved in a brothel in India right now and telling her, you know, there's no judgment. There's, 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 there's nothing. There's no help coming for you. In the end, there's, there's no setting of rights. Yes, there's so many people in the world, y'all, life is just one day of death after another, whether it's mental illness or poverty or war or violence or lack of drinking water. Y'all, if there is no judgment day, if there is no final day when God sets everything right, then all of this brokenness is pointless. Then, then, then our lives are meaningless and evil wins. And I, I honestly, I don't, I don't even think the, hard, the most hardened skeptic would truly ever want to say that. In scripture, judgment is ultimately good news. It's good news because it holds out the hope that evil will one day and ultimately conclusively be dealt with. I love this quote from N.T. Wright. He says this, we need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, God's coming judgment is a good thing. Something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy in the trees of the field, to clap their hands. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and the weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Forced with a world, faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. Do you see that? Do you understand that? This is why there is this drumbeat cry of the word, come. Did you see that? Verse one, verse three, verse five, verse seven, from the four creatures around the throne. Come, 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 come. They're not calling for John to come. He's already there. I personally do not believe, and most commentators don't believe, that they are calling for the horsemen to come because why would creation, who the creatures represent, why would creation be inviting its own destruction? They are not beckoning them. Well, who are they calling for? The lamb. Again and again, Jesus is the one who promises to come. The chapter 1, chapter 23, the whole book is bracketed by Jesus, the one who promises, behold, I am coming soon. Romans 8 tells us that all creation is groaning for this. The groan is a prayer, a cry to the slain lamb to come and set things right. We join in this cry. Every time we pray, as we did earlier, as Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom, what? Come, thy will be done on earth where the horsemen gallop as it is in heaven where the risen king reigns. Come. That is hope for a world trapped in evil for the judge to come. But here's the dilemma. Here's the problem. What will this judgment mean for us? Look at the opening of the sixth seal. It is a very powerful and terrible vision of judgment drawn from many Old Testament scriptures like Amos and Nahum and Malachi. And notice the judgment here and the sixth seal does not fall on just the the exploiters and the rebellious and, and the evil, but it comes down on all. It says in chapter 6, verse 15, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? See, when judgment comes, it comes on everybody. No human is safe. No one high, no one low. No one good, no one bad. No one rich, no one poor. No one religious, no one irreligious. All of us are laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He sees into our hearts, as Romans 3 says, there is nobody living right, not even one, nobody who knows the score, no one alert for God. They've all taken the wrong turn. We've all wandered down blind alleys. Nobody's living right, not a single one. The question is stated, who can stand? And the answer is no one. So that's our dilemma. It's a terrible dilemma. Do you see the dilemma? We need a judgment day. We need Jesus, the lamb, to come and judge because the world's got to be set right or else evil, the horseman, will run rampant forever. We need a judgment. Well, we can't bear the judgment. We can't stand it. We can't endure it. What hope is there? Well, the answer is right here in verse 16. The wrath of the lamb. It's a deliberate paradox you know, we're not here, this is a, you're not supposed to picture like some, you know, fanged red-eyed lamb, like, you know, like that bunny in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you know, the, the tax people. Uh, that's, that's not what we're supposed to picture here. This, remember, it's a symbol, it's a theological symbol portraying one of the greatest truths of the gospel. Jesus, the slain lamb who dies on the cross, simultaneously reveals the wrath of God and the love of God. On the cross, we see the wrath of God. We see God's complete anger pouring out, the totality of his wrath pouring out on the cross. We see the seriousness of our sin and the horror of the cross. We see his wrath. And yet on the cross, we also see the love of God. We see that God's judgment does not fall on us. It does not fall on humanity, but that the triune God bears the wrath in himself, in the person of Jesus, taking our place in the judgment. The wrath of God is borne by God in the person of Christ. This is the inexplicable love of God, that the judge would be judged in our place. It is the anger of the one who has embodied in his own death, his own self-giving, sacrificial love. And that's the secret of the wrath of the lamb, that the one who is judging is the one who was judged. The one who wields the sword is the one who surrendered to the sword. And now, as we see, those who cry out in terror of the lamb do not see him for who he really is, the one who was slain in their place. The one who was steadfast in his love and who was given his life for the life of the world. And so the invitation to all of us as we read this scary text is to see, yes, there is a judgment of evil coming. Yes, we are implicated in the judgment. Yes, no one can stand before it. And yes, the judgment has been taken for us already by the lamb who was slain. You're invited into the cover of his mercy. You're invited into the cover of his grace. Next week, we'll look at chapter 7 as we'll get a true answer to this question, who can stand? We'll see the untold multitude of people of every nation who are, in a very deliberate phrase, chapter 7, verse 9, are standing before the throne of God. And how can they stand? Because of the slain lamb. They have been covered by his grace. That's the invitation to you, friend. Have you been covered? Are you covered by his grace? Are you covered by his mercy? I love, I just, I have to read you this quote from Frederick Buechner. He says this, there is little that we can point to in our lives as deserving anything but God's wrath. 
Our best moments have been mostly grotesque parodies. Our best loves have been almost always blurred with selfishness and deceit. But there is something to which we can point. Not anything that we ever did or were, but something that was done for us by another. Not our own lives, but the life of one who died in our behalf and yet is still alive. This is our only glory and our only hope. And the sound that it makes is the sound of excitement and gladness and laughter that floats through the night air from a great banquet. The judgment of evil. So it's great, right? We're all good. The one who brings ultimate judgment to evil is the one who has already submitted himself to judgment for us. But here's the problem. There's one more problem. What about today? What about tomorrow? What about the fact that we are still living in between the times? The judgment of evil has not yet come. We have to wait. We have to endure. We have to face a world of evil every single day. How are we supposed to live with evil? Well, just as we close, let me just offer a few resources here that I think this passage offers. First, I think one way that we live with evil is through the resource, the practice of lament. You know, there's an invitation here to lament. You see in chapter 6, verse 10, there's an anguished cry from the waiting saints in heaven. They cry out, how long? How long? This is a rich Old Testament theme, especially, rich, especially emerging from the Psalms. We looked at some of that this summer. And the tool that, that, that God gives us in lament is to name what is broken in the world, to face the, the full suffering of the world with, with clear-eyed realism, and then to name it with all of our negative emotions to God. He invites us to do that to him. You know, Alan Bosak was a black South African pastor and theologian, and he was one of the leaders of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. And I, I was fascinated to discover that he preached through the book of Revelation during much of the resistance. And I read his sermon on this text, and this is what he said in this text. Remember, this is right in the middle of the struggle against apartheid. He said, there has hardly been a place where the police and the army have not wantonly murdered our children, piling atrocity upon atrocity for the sake of the preservation of apartheid and white advantage. And as they go from funeral to funeral, bearing yet another victim of law and order, or yet another killed by government-protected death squads, the cry continues to rise to heaven. The cry rises from ourselves, how long, O Lord? Isn't that beautiful? That, that he and his congregation heard this cry from Revelation as an invitation to lament. This kind of lament is necessary as we face suffering and injustice and brutality. And even if we are not the ones personally experiencing the burden of injustice, we can learn to listen to those that are so that we can join them in their lamentation. Michael Gorman, the pastor, writes, what some of us need is not to question the cries of the oppressed, but to feel more fully the realities of injustice, especially when it is perpetrated by the Babylons of our own day. And so we're given this amazing tool of lament in the face of evil. Second, we're given the tool of prayer. In the face of evil, we can pray. And this is not some sentimental religious ritual. This is an invitation to, to take on a powerful spiritual tool that has real agency to affect change in the world. As the last seal is open, the beginning of chapter eight, we read verse four of chapter eight, that the prayers of all the saints are on the golden altar, altar before the throne. So what we see is God is gathering the prayers of his people like incense before his throne. And he responds to those prayers, verse five, by 
hurling down on the earth thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquakes. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes we say, like, well, all we can do is pray. Like it's some sort of impotent religious gesture. But from the heavenly perspective, prayer literally shakes the world. God hears the prayers of his people, gathers them, and then responds to those prayers with world-shaking action. Jacques Ellul, the French philosopher, said this, the Christian who prays acts more effectively and more decisively on society than the person who is politically involved with all the sincerity of faith put into the involvement. Why? Because prayer has real spiritual power. Things are not what they seem. Prayer seems so small, so ineffective. But in reality, it is a revolutionary action that God uses to move mountains. Pray in the face of evil. Lament prayer, and finally, suffering love. Look again at chapter 6, verse 11. The souls of those who'd been martyred are there in heaven. They're calling out to God. How long? They're not crying out for vengeance. They're calling out for God to judge evil. And they are told by God, wait a little longer, verse 11, until the number of your fellow servants who are to be killed as you have is completed. Now, this seems to suggest something quite sobering, that God actually says here that more people will have to die so that the gospel can go forth on the earth. And we know that this is true, that more people have died for the sake of the gospel in the last 120 years than all the other centuries of church history combined. And we know that one of the ways that God redeems evil, as our brothers and sisters in the global persecuted church will tell you, is to use the death of his saints to advance his purposes. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And maybe some of us, maybe some of you, will have to die for the gospel. Now, I don't think this is only about martyrdom. I think it's also a spiritual principle. It's a reminder of the kind of life that every follower of Jesus is called to live. Jesus said, if anyone is to come after me, he must take up his cross, which means to die. Die to self, die to your needs, die to your agenda. And so what we're called to do, like Ed said last week, is to go not the way of the lion, but the way of the lamb. And the way of the lamb is always the way of death. It's always the way of self-abnegation. It's always the way of losing your life for the sake of others. And so one of the ways that we live in the face of evil is that we allow ourselves even to absorb evil for others as Jesus has done for us. What does that mean? Just, I wrote down a few examples. It could mean welcoming unjust criticisms, helping people who are really ungrateful, Willingly serving people that, frankly, annoy you. Forgiving people with no conditions. Praying for and fervently serving your enemies. Refusing to seek out personal praise. Choosing to go the way of unrecognized service. Not demanding your own way or agenda. Willingly accepting suffering for others that they will never know about. Letting people cut you off in traffic. Waving at them. God uses even these tiny, little, small, daily deaths that we do for Jesus to, in his mysterious purposes, advance his redemptive purpose in the world. The way of life, the way of redemption is the cruciform way, the way of the slain lamb. So let's go back to our original question. How can God be good and powerful in a world like ours, in a world full of evil? Well, the key is the slain lamb. 
If on the cross God is able to take all of the terrible evil and, and, and sin arrayed against him and transform it into the greatest good, literally the salvation of the world, then God can still do that today. Nothing can happen in the world. I promise you, nothing can happen in the world. Nothing can happen in your life that cannot be taken by the lamb and woven into his good and his redemptive purposes. Yes, the world is full of evil. Yes, the world is in chaos. But Jesus is reigning. Jesus is working. And Jesus is moving at this moment to set things right. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, what a heavy subject this morning, and we need uh, spiritual eyes to see the truth of the reigning Jesus, even in the face of the rampant evil in our world. And, and I just want to pray, especially this morning, I'm burdened for those who are experiencing evil in their own lives, whether it's um, the ways that they may have been abused or betrayed or deeply wounded by another person, even someone in their own family, uh, for the ways that they've been uh, victims of injustice, for the ways that they are having to suffer from some sort of terrible illness or disease that is an unjust uh, experience that they never imagined their life would look like. Lord, I especially want to pray for those tonight, that they would have the eyes of faith to see Jesus on the throne, that they would see that Jesus has put a deadline to the end of evil, and that in the midst of evil that we can see him there, we can have hope, we can rest in his, the, the hope of judgment, and that we can lament and pray and continue to go the little way of the slain lamb. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.